From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The leaves changed colors and fell. Pumpkin spice has been everywhere. But fall's hardly been sweater weather. But it's been a very mild November. We've already had seven or eight days in the 70s and very little moisture, a few spits of snow and rain. Our regular chat about Colorado climate and weather today with Denver 7's Mike Nelson. Then, how people living with HIV become political footballs when it's federal budget time. Vic Vela has that reporting for us. And closing arguments in the case to shut Donald Trump out of the primary in Colorado. He has violated his oath. He engaged in insurrection. Absolutely nothing that President Trump said prior to January 6th would constitute incitement. I'm Leanne Klassen, and my husband Bob and I are CPR leadership partners. We are very happy to be able to support CPR. The wider reach, the wider coverage of the world, of Washington, of Colorado, and individual communities across various platforms all continues to add to the value of CPR, and it truly is a treasure for our state. Connect your passion for CPR with a gift at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's fall, winter, just a month away. But in much of the state, the weather is mild. That first snowfall in Metro Denver in October feels rather distant. Well, Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson is going to help us understand the patterns in our regular conversation. Hi, Mike. Hey, Ryan. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you, too. Is this the El Nino weather pattern we've spoken of before? I think we're getting a pretty good dose of it right now. It has been a very mild November. We've already had about seven or eight days in the 70s. The average high right now at this time of the month is in the low 50s. Had a couple of records earlier in the month and very little moisture. A few spits of snow and rain, but not much of anything. So that's going to change a bit. We can talk about that shortly, but we have had a really mild pattern going with west-to-east flow in the jet stream. A lot of moisture has been hitting the Gulf Coast area. And that's exactly what we expect with an El Nino pattern, blocking the cold air from coming down from Canada because it's a west to east flow and a lot of that precipitation moving south and east of us. So, matter of fact, Fort Lauderdale has had 100 inches of rain this year. My sweater drawers are feeling a little a little lonely. (laughs) Now, there will be a little shift coming up Thanksgiving week. It could well be that we'll have a classic Thanksgiving day with cloudy and cold conditions and some snow falling. And some snow falling is going to be my next question. Well, can we expect the mild to continue? For this winter? Yep. Over the next 30 to 60 days, it looks like milder conditions for us and maybe a little bit wetter. Uh, It's going to definitely be wetter east of here and southeast of here. But The westerly flow that we get with a good, strong El Nino brings in soggy systems from the Pacific, blocking the colder systems coming down from Canada. So the longer-term outlook is for, uh, I think, a fairly decent winter as far as snowfall, but not a lot of cold. I think of how our snowpack, I mean, obviously depends on annual snowfall. Even though Denver has been fairly dry, what about the mountains? Well, that early snow in October 
opened up a lot of ski resorts, but it's getting pretty sketchy up there right now. They've had lots of days in the 40s and even low 50s, and I think that snow has gotten a little thin. Been cold enough that they can still make snow on many of the nights, but they would be looking forward to a big snowfall if we could get one. We'll get a fairly decent storm coming up for the mountains on Sunday and Monday, just in the next couple of days, that may drop 6 to 10 inches of snow up there. Down here, we'll get light amounts of snow Sunday night and Monday morning. Shouldn't amount to a whole lot, but it does at least look a little bit better for the high country. But right now, I'd say they're wanting for sure. I like referring to Denver as down here, (laughs) even for the Mile High City. I found this interesting, Mike. There are actually three winters, depending on whom you ask or which calendar you're using. Meteorological winter is December 1st through February. Astronomical winter is the three months that follow the winter solstice. So the shortest day of the year, which is December 21st. And now we're in solar winter. That's the three months with the shortest daylight hours. In other words, the darkest time of year. (laughs) Well, that's pretty close to the astronomical winter because we're looking at the shortest day and then getting up to the the spring equinox. Meteorological winter, I'd say in Colorado, really is more like late October through Mother's Day. (laughs) Because... (laughs) By the first part of March, that might work in other parts of the country, but March and April are two of our uh, most wintry months, and so often we still get a snowfall in early May. Is climate change changing, uh, well, the contours of winter? Mm -hmm. Obviously, astronomical winter or solar winter would stay the same. I mean, that is dictated by the revolution around the sun, but meteorological winter is getting much shorter in many parts of the country because it's warmer in the fall and gets warmer again in the spring. So many areas are seeing a later first freeze and earlier last freeze and snowfall. Colorado, again, because of our higher elevation, we can certainly pick up snow from September through early May, even down here. <laughs> I love the way you said down here. And down here. Uh, in the low elevations here. And on, in the high country, they'll continue to have the snowy long season. But As our state also gets warmer, the uh, tree line is going to change its position because we're going to have warmer conditions moving up the mountains. Mm. We'll see different flora and fauna. And if we continue without rather rapid and dramatic steps to cut down on the carbon pollution, we will see a climate that is more like that of New Mexico by the end of this century and uh, in the early 20. 100s would see a climate that's going to be more like northern Mexico. Hmm. That's scary. I mean, talk about 100-degree high temperatures in Estes Park in the summertime. Mm -hmm. That would be crazy. Well, the National Climate Assessment came out this week. Congress requires it, and every five years it gets updated. It finds the rise in global temperatures is already creating more frequent and more severe weather One data point in the assessment, in the 1980s, the U.S. used to average a billion-dollar weather disaster once every four months. We are now getting them once every three weeks. And Colorado and the Southwest are especially vulnerable. What can you add, given your, you know, half-century of analyzing weather and climate? couple of things. One, obviously, things are more expensive now than they were then. So it's easier in just the 
the monetary values to get a billion dollar disaster, but mm. that does not account for the number of them that we are seeing. As the earth gets warmer, we are creating a steroid effect on all weather. Droughts are drier, floods are wetter, tropical storms strengthen faster and are wetter. Winter storms can still be bigger and wetter. And the one that we've talked about a little bit in the past that's a little surprising is you can actually get regional and local cold outbreaks that can be more severe. Witness that big one they had in Texas a couple of winters ago. As the Arctic regions get warmer, the jet stream slows down a little bit because the jet stream feeds off of the north-south temperature contrast. And the greater it is, that means more energy for the jet stream. If you think about a fast-moving mountain stream, it kind of cuts straight through things. Mm -hmm. If you think about a meandering river, it will wander back and forth, looping around. And so you can get a loop in the jet stream that would allow cold air, very cold air, to, for a period of time, drop way south. And you can even make cold waves colder in a local or regional area. Crazy stuff. Global weirding Global is weirding term that's used. And I think that really speaks to it. Well, seven out of 10 Americans now believe climate change is starting to harm people in the U.S. About two thirds think it'll be worse over their lifetimes. That's according to a survey by Pew. What are you hearing when you talk in classrooms and, you know, various groups about climate change? Are our attitudes shifting? They are a little bit. And uh, I, the part that's alarming, and I've heard this from some of my uh, college professor friends, is that people that are of that age in the 18 to 25 year old age are feeling a sense of hopelessness mm-hmm. that it hasn't been dealt with to date and they will pay the price because for the greater amount of their life, they're going to have to deal with it. And that people of my generation should have been more on the stick over the last 30 to 40 years on getting solutions. I think we still can fix this. And the tremendous growth in renewable energy and the decline in the prices for wind and solar and the dramatic uh, invention happening in the battery storage field gives me great hope because we have a huge, very dependable nuclear fusion reactor. We've already figured it out. It's 93 million miles away, and it's going to burn for several hundred million years, billions of years to come. I see where you're going. I see where you're going. And all we have to do is capture that energy coming, capture it from the way the winds blow and the way the sun shines. Because when people say the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine on a big enough scale, yes, it does. Mike Nelson, we're heading into the holiday travel season, and eco-friendly jet fuel is still decades away, based on some reporting that our climate and environment team has done recently. I wanted to ask about your relationship to flying. Maybe you've heard of the, I think it's the Swedish term, flygskum, flight shame, given flying's enormous carbon footprint. Do you have flygskum? How do you manage it? (laughs) Well, the thing is, virtue and thermodynamics are are two very different things. (laughs) We should all eat better, be more polite. We shouldn't speed. All of those things that, you know, those are virtues that we should do more, exercise, etc. I fly because I need to get somewhere. 
I drive downtown because that's where the TV station is. I try and do it in my electric car as much as I can. But we can't deny the fact that every time we burn coal, oil, or natural gas, we are adding carbon to the atmosphere, which is warming the planet. Aviation, I believe, is 3% of all global emissions, if I'm correct. I read a great article about the new battery-powered trains that they're developing in Australia that use regenerative braking. So when the train is going downhill, it's recharging the batteries, and then the batteries carry the train back uphill. Oh. Obviously, it's a lot easier to put batteries on a train because it's sitting on the ground than it is to put batteries on a plane. But, you know, look at the difference in aviation from when I was a kid. I mean, jets were just coming out 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to be very different in the way we transport people in the air in the next 50 to 60 years. So, as I always say, the physical science of climate change is pretty simple. Add heat, get warmer. The political science of what to do about it is a bigger lift. Before we go, I was scouring schedules for some of my favorite music venues, and I saw you're doing a show soon, December 5th at Chautauqua in Boulder. What are you going to sing, Mike? The event up at Chautauqua will be about an hour-long presentation on climate change, science, and solutions. I probably won't sing. Oh, well. I, <laughs> I did sing the other night when we lit the Christmas lights at the TV station because uh, they didn't come on at first. It was just like out of Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase. And then finally they did come on, so I went, joy to the world. But the Chautauqua event <laughs> will be uh, a good presentation of the science but also present ideas and innovations and solutions as to how we can solve this problem. A chance to see Mike Nelson in person, not in front of a green screen. That's right. Thank That's you right. so much. Hey, a quick shout out, if I might. We said goodbye last night to our, our wonderful Anne Trujillo, who is moving on to her next phase in life. I have had 20 years of the honor and privilege to stand beside her on the anchor desk every day. And what a great legend of Denver television she is. Anne, I wish you all the best. Oh, me too, Anne. I got to work with you on a senatorial debate, and you made all my questions better and sharper. So, Mike, thank you so much. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson. We speak each month about the relationship between weather and climate in Colorado. When we come back, why groups that help Coloradans living with HIV-AIDS are concerned about the federal budget. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Holiday travel's about to take off, and airports are trying to keep up. A flying public that was cooped up in the pandemic is now desperate to spread its wings. People have prioritized travel. We are seeing numbers that are extraordinary. On a special Colorado Matters, hacks from airport insiders, and a question many of you are asking, will Denver's airport be under construction forever? Listen in the Colorado Matters podcast. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This week, Congress again staved off another government shutdown. The next budget battle comes in January. These stopgap measures frustrate people whose lives depend on steady federal funding. With us to talk about one such group, Coloradans living with HIV AIDS, is CPR's Vic Vela. And hi, Vic. 
Hey there, Ryan. You speak openly about being HIV positive. And so, mm-hmm. uh, first off, how does your experience inform your reporting on this issue? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Well, yeah, I've been living with HIV for 17 years now. And um, I tested positive back in 2006. You know, and thanks to science, right, and, and medicine, I'm, I'm in adherence. You got to stay on the meds, but I'm still alive and my status is undetectable. You know, that means the virus is suppressed. It's not doing any damage. And this is important. You know, it's impossible for me to transmit the virus when I'm undetectable. So, but listen, getting there, it's not easy, you know, and at least with my story, I did a lot of heavy drugs for many years. There were times where I was unemployed and I relied on HIV assistant programs that we're going to get into today to pay for things like rent and electricity and, and medicine. And for this story, Ryan, I spoke with a really nice fellow named Anthony Cherry of Denver. Uh, he's had similar experiences. Uh, he lives on disability and relies on housing assistance through HIV programs. But those same programs that had been passed with overwhelming bipartisan support in Congress have now become politicized. And uh, right now, Anthony's frustrated because HIV funding is getting caught up in culture war politics in D.C. Look how long it took them to even acknowledge us with AIDS. They thought it was just a a gay disease and really didn't affect them. And so it really didn't. We really didn't start getting help until it started affecting everybody. Now, today, I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't know what's going on. It is like some kind of twilight zone that I feel like I'm living in. Twilight zone, quite a description. Hmm. And just to underscore something you said earlier, Vic, that treatment is prevention. That is to say, those who are on meds cannot transmit the virus. That's really important. Yeah. What kinds of programs are we talking about here? And what causes advocates concern over possible budget cuts? Well, let's start with a program that has a really long title. It's called the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR, which which some folks may be familiar with. It's a global effort to combat AIDS. And look, it's been a resounding success since it was created by President George W. Bush in 2003. And it saved more than 25 million lives around the world through funding that supports the distribution of HIV medicine, testing, and prevention services to more than 50 countries. Then there's President Trump's Ending HIV in America initiative. That's a domestic program that really tries to connect hard-to-reach groups like drug users to critical HIV services, especially in the American South, where we're seeing a lot of hotspots for new HIV infections. Mm. And another big one is is a name that that a lot of folks are probably familiar with, Ryan White. course, was the Indiana boy who contracted HIV through a blood transfusion back in the 1980s. That's the largest federal program focused on HIV. So these have all been successful programs that have been bipartisan success stories. And that's something that's really rare Mm. in America. But lately, it's become politicized. I spoke with Barb Cardell about this. Barb is the legislative chair for CORA, which stands for Colorado Organizations and Individuals Responding to AIDS. I'm a progressive. 
<laughs> and so I don't often uh, find much to celebrate around conservative politics. But I will say that I absolutely celebrated and honored President Bush for the PEPFAR initiative. It was it was visionary. And I don't have a lot that I celebrate President Trump for, but the ending the HIV epidemic and adding additional funding was visionary, was profound, was amazing. HIV is not a political football. The people are playing games with lives, with real lives. Now, these games Barb is talking about have to do with efforts by today's House Republicans to either stall funding or completely strip funding for these programs. And it's largely been over culture war politics. Take PEPFAR, for example, which was last reauthorized five years ago by unanimous consent, has yet to be renewed because some Republican members of Congress say the program funds abortions worldwide. Now, there are some groups who get PEPFAR funding that happen to provide HIV and abortion services, but there's no evidence that PEPFAR money directly funds abortions. And this year, Republicans have also shown little interest in funding Trump's effort to end HIV. Uh, back in September, the GOP backed a spending bill that would have zeroed out CDC funding for the program. And of course, Ryan, the CDC has been increasingly caught up in culture wars over things like vaccines. Um, and there's been efforts to eliminate a lot of the funding for the Ryan White program. Now, most HIV programs are housed in the Health and Human Services Department. And again, we've seen how public health has become politicized since the COVID pandemic. And so fascinating to see how that affects other aspects of mm. public health. Was HIV funding secured in the stopgap measure that means we avoid a shutdown, at least for now? Yeah. So the stopgap funding, you know, it continues funding at a flat level mm. for these HIV programs, meaning they just get the same amount of money they've been getting until there's a formal budget for this current fiscal year that we're in, which goes from October 23 to October 24. But listen, HIV advocates argue that 2023 dollars don't go as far as 2024 dollars. And things like housing, food, medicine cost more than they did a year ago. So they say even just flat funding isn't enough to cover these services. And the constant Band-Aid approach to budgeting makes it really hard on these nonprofits to plan. You know, these measures frustrate folks like Matt Pagnotti, He's the state and local government relations director for Vivant Health, a nonprofit that provides services for people living with HIV. Now, that's a lot of uncertainty. That's grants that can't get turned around yet from those federal agencies until they have those final budget numbers. That may be staff that can't get hired yet till organizations know, you know, hey, what's the picture going to be looking like? Um, and then that instability also impacts the folks that we serve because, you know, we're having to kind of always sit there and be waiting on Congress to do its job. Now, I'm assuming it's unlikely that any drastic cuts to HIV programs that come out of the House would stick in the Senate, controlled by Democrats. But another election is coming up in less than a year. Is that leading to some anxiety among HIV advocates? Yeah, Barb Cardell from Cora is drastically worried. That's a direct quote. 
you know, Colorado nonprofits like Vivant and the Boulder County AIDS Project, the Southern Colorado AIDS Project, get several millions of dollars in HIV grants uh, from the federal government, and they could be in jeopardy. Now, I covered Colorado politics for years, and I know what all goes into budget debates, right? Like, you see a million amendments, and some are serious, some are not, while some are messaging amendments hmm. that are aimed at particular audience, like a politician's base who, you know, they may want to send a message to constituents that they're serious about cutting spending or something like that. A lot of times these amendments don't go anywhere. They don't make it into the budget bill. But HIV advocates say the messaging itself is harmful. Here's Barb Cardell again. Even having these proposals out there so that people are talking about HIV programs and then they say, oh, we'll negotiate them as we are really getting towards our further conversations around the budget are frightening because we know that once you sort of identify a program as even being something to be looked at, that the negotiations start in the back rooms and that they're not informed by people who know the impact of these services. And Ryan, another thing that's really important to get across, something that Matt Pagnotti said, just because HIV isn't making headlines like they used to, it doesn't mean that people aren't still suffering. And I could tell you firsthand that people are still dying of AIDS today. Uh, listen, I lost an ex-partner to AIDS just recently. He was young and beautiful. I called him Vanity Smurf <laughs> because he would always be checking himself out in the mirror. Um, and over the years, he just he got caught up with drugs. And um, by the time he found out he had HIV, it already became full-blown AIDS. And uh, the pneumonia took over his immune system. And that was that. So it's 2023, and we're still losing people we love to AIDS. A disease that fundamentally is treatable. I think that's the... Mm. The thing to underscore. That's I'm sorry exactly about that, right. Las Vic, as well. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having me. CPR's Vic Vela spoke with advocates who are concerned about federal funding to prevent and treat HIV-AIDS. Vic's also the host of Back From Broken, a podcast about recovery. And Colorado Matters continues in this next half hour with the case to keep Donald Trump off the primary ballot in Colorado, the purplish team, when we come back. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. The rugged mountain on Coors beer cans that conveys contents as cold as the Rockies? Well, it's the same one seen in many Jeep commercials to emphasize toughness. Wilson Peak is also the backdrop for Quentin Tarantino's movie, The Hateful Eight. It's one of three 14ers in a cluster of volcanic peaks in the western San Juans called the Wilson Group. To add to the confusion, that group includes Mount Wilson. These geographical features are named for the cartographer who mapped out much of the western slope. To the Ute people, Wilson Peak was Shandoka, the storm maker, because clouds gather around it and affect local weather. Though it's accessible year-round, Wilson Peak is not an easy climb. It involves scrambling over rocks. But you can also get the iconic view of the peak from the top of the Telluride Ski Resort Gondola. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of National Jewish Health. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. 
A judge will rule soon on whether Donald Trump should be kept off the Republican primary ballot in Colorado. Closing arguments are now done. Let's get broader perspective from Purplish, CPR's politics podcast. Public affairs reporter Benta Berkland is joined this time by Nick Coltrane of the Denver Post. One of the highest stakes history lessons of the year played out in a Denver courtroom earlier this fall. At this time, petitioners moved to admit Professor Magliocca as an expert in the history of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, known as the Disqualification Clause, ratified in 1868 after the Civil War. Basically, there were elections held throughout the South after the war ended, and many of the same people who had been in office before the war and had left to join the Confederacy were returned to office as if nothing had happened. So Congress put in a section in the 14th Amendment that bans anyone who has taken an oath to protect the U.S. Constitution and then engaged in an insurrection from holding office again. They wanted to keep officials who had left to join the Confederacy from returning to office unless they showed that they deserved a second chance. The clause has mostly been gathering dust since the days of Reconstruction, until recently. It hasn't been successfully prosecuted in more than 100 years. But now, starting in Colorado, it could potentially reshape the entire 2024 presidential landscape. President Trump was not just a part of the insurrection on January 6th, he was the leader of the insurrection. He summoned the mob. He created a false and desperate expectation in his supporters that the only way by January 6th they could overturn the results of what they thought were a stolen election was through force and violence. Colorado is ground zero for a fight over whether that rarely used section of the Constitution will keep former President Trump from appearing on voters' ballots next year. He has violated his oath. He engaged in insurrection. Absolutely nothing that President Trump said prior to January 6th would constitute incitement. A Colorado judge will decide whether the former president is an insurrectionist or a politician expressing his views within the bounds of the First Amendment. But this isn't a case that will stop here in Colorado. It has the potential to set a precedent for the entire nation and alter politics for years to come. Nick and I both sat in the courtroom while this case was being argued, and we're here to break down the lawsuit why it matters, and the interesting legal questions it poses, and of course, what it means for politics. Colorado's always occupied this like odd space in the 2020 election. I'm, I'm thinking of like the Tina Peters case, for example. But even so, it was fascinating to see a case of potentially national magnitude like this just be brought at the Denver City Courthouse. And this case really centers on two key questions. Did the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol rise to the level of an insurrection? If it did, did Trump's involvement amount to engaging in the insurrection or aiding or giving comfort to those who did? 
And it gets at that question in kind of a novel way. The lawsuit was brought by a handful of unaffiliated and Republican voters. In full disclosure, that includes conservative columnist for the Denver Post, Krista Kafer, uh, who doesn't have any say in editorial decision making. But those voters are working together with a liberal watchdog group, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. Uh, in essence, they're arguing that the 14th Amendment would disqualify Trump. And if he's allowed to remain on the ballot, that would rob them of being able to support their preferred candidates. And one reason this lawsuit had to come from Republican and unaffiliated voters is that to have standing, you have to be a voter who can participate in the Republican primary. And we're noting, I think, that Trump's lead attorney has a lot of experience with this type of law. He's a former Colorado Secretary of State, Republican Scott Gessler. And while Colorado is at the forefront of this particular challenge, there are similar challenges working their way through other states, all with the goal of setting a national precedent that would essentially keep the Republican frontrunner from being able to run at all. Let's start with the section of the Constitution that's really at the heart of this lawsuit, the so-called Disqualification Clause. It sort of had this second life in the recent years after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, it's really moved from almost a line of trivia in the Constitution to being central to several lawsuits against sitting members of Congress. Unsuccessful lawsuits, but lawsuits nonetheless challenging the eligibility of Congressman Paul Gosar, former Congressman Madison Cawthorn, and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. All of those lawsuits argued that their support to overturn the 2020 election amounted to insurrection. But there has been one success for supporters of this tactic, and that was last year, a New Mexico court removed a county commissioner from office for participating in the January 6th riot. And that victory proponents of this strategy say really helped this whole idea get broader traction. Opponents of the former president have really been looking at any legal strategy they can to try and keep him from running again. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That put a point to this nebulous 14th Amendment challenge. What I think is really tricky about this, though, is that the Constitution doesn't explicitly define insurrection. And because it hasn't been used much, courts don't have a lot of precedent to look at. So in a lot of ways, this judge in Denver is really in uncharted territory. Indeed. And it's important to remember that there's been no charge, much less conviction of insurrection for the former president. He also hasn't been convicted of any of the other charges he had surrounding the 2020 election. And when I mentioned that New Mexico county commissioner, that person had been convicted in federal court. That's something we hear from Trump supporters. Like, look, Trump hasn't been convicted of anything. One thing I found that was fascinating in court is kind of starting off with this history, since a lot of people aren't familiar with this 14th Amendment. I know I wasn't until I started covering this. The plaintiffs brought in a legal scholar who just did like a book's worth of research on how courts have defined insurrection throughout American history. And every instance he could find of the disqualification clause being invoked. Yeah. And if I recall, he said that the events of January 6th, that was kind of what spurred his interest in the topic. And yeah, him looking back as far as, you know, contemporary dictionaries of the time the amendment was drafted back to events that were happening a quarter millennium ago for a modern court case that centers around tweets is kind of something to behold. 
This legal scholar, law professor Gerard Magliaca from Indiana University actually had to go way back, even before the 14th Amendment, to find examples other than the Civil War that people agree were insurrections. There were two notable insurrections early on in American history. Uh, one was the Whiskey Insurrection, which is also known as the Whiskey Rebellion. And that happened in 1794 in Pennsylvania. Uh, it was a tax protest by uh, farmers who were angry at a new federal tax on distilleries that had been put in as part of Alexander Hamilton's financial, financial scheme for the federal government. I never would have guessed that a single paragraph in my U.S. history textbook from high school would rear its head again for a court case that I was covering professionally. As a politics reporter at the Colorado State House, <laughs> you know, you expect to be sitting in a committee hearing and listening to bills. But this historic background is, is really grounding for this lawsuit. And the plaintiffs try to do their best to convince this judge that January 6th was, in fact, also an insurrection somewhere between the Whiskey Rebellion and the Civil War. And to do that, they've introduced a lot of evidence that first surfaced as part of the January 6th Select Committee's final report on the events of that day, bringing up a lot of body cam footage and videos and tweets and things of that nature to really emphasize for the court what happened that day. President Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. We have a breach of the Capitol! Breach of the Capitol! I, what I saw was just a, a war scene. It, it was something like I had seen out of the movies. And what seemed like a sea of people, Capitol Police officers and Metropolitan Police officers, MPD, were engaged in desperate hand-to-hand -hand fighting with rioters across the West Lawn. As an outside observer, I feel like of all the things the plaintiffs have to prove to try to make this case, showing that what happened on January 6th was an insurrection, I think they have an easier time showing that than some of the other claims. Because during their evidence, we saw violence. We heard firsthand testimony of physical injuries. We know people died that day. And I think they showed a lot in that part of the hearing. And I didn't hear the judge really question whether or not it could be an insurrection. Yeah, a lot of the body camera footage, it's a first-person perspective of these law enforcement officers as they're trying to push back this riotous mob that was pushing its way into the Capitol. And it was interesting, too, watching the former president's attorneys come back because they were trying to be very specific. They weren't trying to disparage uh, the cops that were there that day, but they were trying to emphasize that they only provided a small window into what was happening of an event that involved thousands of people. Yeah, I think just this idea that, look, your view of that day was limited from your personal perspective. And we heard different perspectives, certainly from Trump's side when they called witnesses. They brought in supporters of the former president who were there for the rally before the storming of the Capitol. And they said, look, they were not being urged to violence. And they said they didn't see people around them responding to Trump's speech at the Ellipse with violence. I mean, people were happy. The president was there. They came there to see their um, president. Many people had never been to Washington, D.C., so it was like a highlight of their life. That was Amy Kramer. She founded Women for America First, one of the groups that planned and organized the January 6th rally at the Ellipse. After the rally, she went back to her hotel room and just saw the events on TV. But she describes the beginning of the day and the Stop the Steal rally 
from her perspective, is just going great and very similar to other pro-Trump rallies in Washington, D.C. Very uplifting, patriotic, and just full of love. I mean, happy people dancing and just waiting to see their president. Lawyers for the former president, they also called Congressman Ken Buck literally the day after he announced his retirement. And in a statement announcing that retirement, he slammed what he described as election denialism that had really taken over the party. So seeing what he had to say on the stand really was an open question for me. I think Buck was a surprise witness for a lot of people because he has been so strong in opposing the stolen election lie. He was really there to testify to the January 6th Select Commission and the findings of that group. Even though it was a bipartisan commission, he said he doesn't think it was fair or balanced or it showed both sides of the argument. He didn't think Trump's perspective was fairly captured in the commission's findings. You know, in in my experience as a prosecutor, if a defense attorney isn't present and the defendant isn't present, it's not a real fair trial. And in this case, you need to have both sides, you need to have the adversarial system uh, working in order to get accurate and full, complete information for an issue like the January 6th uh, investigation. He didn't think Trump's perspective was fairly captured in the commission's findings, so he wasn't willing to say what Trump's involvement or culpability was in January 6th. A line that he testified to that really stuck with me is when Congressman Buck, he's a former prosecutor himself, he gets up there and says the January 6th report, that was political. It was not an invested proper investigation. It isn't purely a search for the truth. It is a political exercise that is being engaged in to create uh, information for elections. That's, that's what the political system is about. We've been talking about one big task for the plaintiffs here in this case is to convince the judge that what happened on January 6th was an insurrection, the kind that Congress imagined when Congress wrote the 14th Amendment. But the other thing they have to do to make their case is argue that Trump himself was part of that insurrection. One legal expert that I spoke to describing the way he sees the case playing out is the plaintiffs trying to put the former president somewhere between the county commissioner who actually stormed the Capitol on that day and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, whose 14th Amendment complaint was thrown out because she was kind of rooting it on from afar, but she wasn't any more involved than that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an interesting point because Trump didn't walk to the Capitol, didn't go into the Capitol. And so a lot of this has been on what was his language, his messaging leading up to that day. And for plaintiffs, their main witness for this argument was an expert on far right extremism. He's a sociology professor, Peter Simi from Chapman University. And he said Trump's language, not just that day, but months leading up to it, fit in with the way far-right extremist groups talk about the country and the future of the country. It represents the worldview in terms of seeing these imminent threats, these existential threats, deeply tied to the idea of the stolen election, but also more broad than that, 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 you know, basically our, our country is on the verge of being completely taken away from us. 
And that's when we saw a lot of references to tweets that the former president had sent out using words like fighting and the plaintiffs trying to make the argument that when a normal person hears a word like that, they assume that it's a metaphor. But when some of Trump's most ardent supporters hear words like fight, they take it very literal. So it's a message that is being translated one way for a broad audience, but then being heard very specifically by a very narrow audience. Yeah, that's right. And then Professor Simi also talked about a word like 1770. That's kind of almost coded. So if you're part of a far right extremist group, you're going to hear that word and take a different meaning from it than you or I would. This argument about Trump's language goes to one of the main arguments his defense made, though. And that was just like, look, this is typical political speech. It's protected by the First Amendment. And in fact, Trump's attorneys played a bunch of clips, like a montage of Democrats using similar language about fighting that Trump used. One of Trump's lawyers, Scott Gessler, the former Republican Secretary of State for Colorado, he almost took a mocking tone at one point where he professed to be very conservative himself, but he only heard the kind of the plain everyday language in the president's statements, whereas only the sociologists and people on the far, far right, farther right than the former Secretary of State is, hear the true meaning of what the president was trying to say. And the judge even seemed a little skeptical of this whole idea that Trump's speech was a loaded call to violence. And she noted that all of these arguments from plaintiffs are being made in the wake of January 6th, after everything happened. Is it your testimony that if you had watched that speech and nothing had happened, that you would have the same view. I mean, I guess what worries me with all of this is it's all kind of in 2020 hindsight. You know, you know what happened. However, the plaintiffs, they didn't try to argue that their case is only about what Trump said in that moment on January 6th or in the months leading up to it. They tried to tie together what he did and didn't do as the mob was storming the Capitol as evidence that he was part of the quote unquote insurrection. Yeah, that was another key part of their argument. Are you aiding the insurrection by not stopping, they argued, the violence sooner? So we did hear from experts about what the president's executive powers were, National Guard troops, who was where, and everything that went along with that in terms of why there was such a slow response that day. Almost arguing that his not acting was acting in favor of overthrowing the election. No matter what the judge decides, I think it's safe to say that the outcome will probably be appealed. I know some of the groundwork has been laid already to potentially fast track this all the way up to at least the state Supreme Court. And of course, something of such national interest and people are going to start voting in caucuses and elections very soon uh, to determine who the next Republican nominee is. So it could potentially be snatched up by the U.S. Supreme Court, too. I think that's the goal of supporters of this lawsuit to get the U.S. Supreme Court to make a decision and set a precedent that other states would have to follow. Which, if other cases have been any indication, it could be a tough road for Trump's opponents. A similar case in Minnesota was just struck down by that state's highest court. What's interesting about that is, yes, the Minnesota Supreme Court dismissed the lawsuit, but they didn't touch on the underlying legal case about whether it was an insurrection, whether President Trump engaged in an insurrection. Instead, the Minnesota Supreme Court said, look, parties can put anyone they want on the ballot, essentially, and that if you really want to challenge this, you have to wait till if he ends up being the general election candidate. So if Colorado's case keeps moving forward, this will be one of the first times that a judge rules on 
the underlying merits of the case. Well, not to go to Civics 101, in this country, our president isn't elected in a single election. They're chosen through 51 individual elections, the 50 states and the District of Columbia. So what happens in Minnesota doesn't necessarily predicate what happens in Colorado. And as long as we're talking about Civil War era events, it's important to remember that presidential candidates haven't always appeared on every single ballot in every single state. And you know how legal cases sometimes draw out for weeks, months, years? That will not happen with this case because there is an ironclad deadline. Colorado's primary ballots have to be certified by January 5th, 2024. So everything that's happening right now is sort of rushing toward that end date. So this lawsuit is unfolding in the court system. Lots of nuance, interesting legal facts. But of course, it's so much more than just a set of legal arguments. I really want to end this episode by talking about what this case means outside of the courtroom. Because whatever the courts decide on this 14th Amendment question, there's a much bigger question here. Should the courts decide at all who gets to be on the presidential ballot in a situation like this? And that's really the existential question at the heart of this lawsuit. As a self-governing people, like who determines the candidates that we get to choose for our highest office? The state Republican Party, they joined this lawsuit as an intervener, essentially making that argument that if people don't think somebody is qualified for the White House, they have a very direct way of saying no to that, whether it's in the primary election that's going to be happening in the spring or it's in the general election that's going to be happening in November. Kind of an interesting flip of the plaintiffs in the case who are arguing that having a disqualified candidate is robbing them of their voice and the candidates they prefer having a better shot at making it through the electoral jungle that we have. And we've talked about the stakes being so high because this is not just any race. It's the presidential race. It's not just any candidate. It's a former president who is likely to be the GOP nominee for president. The judge even said this. There's such strong feelings on all sides of this issue. I don't know if you got this sense, Nick, but when I was talking to other reporters and even other people in the legal profession, I think we all agreed that I wouldn't want to be the judge in this case. You know, this is a very, very difficult decision to make. It will probably be part of the historic record. And who knows how this will turn out. But I think she has a very tough task. Why well, I'm glad I never went to law school. Denver Post reporter Nick Coltrane joining our own Benta Berkland on Purplish. Find our politics and policy podcast everywhere. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, and I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News and KRCC.